Welcome to episode one of the Hard Things Podcast. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rich and I will be your host. I am a health and fitness coach who works mainly in the body composition space. I have an online business with my fiance Susie and I like to do hard things. About two weeks ago, I had the idea that I should start a podcast and there were a few reasons for that idea coming up. One of them being that we need to make content for our business and I enjoy making content, but I figured that I would be better suited to making longer form content because I am of the belief that when you're trying to squeeze nuance and detail and context into reels that hack social media algorithms, a lot of it can become lost. So I've always gravitated to digesting the longer form content. I love listening to podcasts. I love watching podcasts. So I thought I'd throw my hat in the ring. When I had the idea, I was about to start researching because that's what we do these days, right? We have an idea to do something and we have the entire internet at our fingertips and the internet is where you go to figure out how to do stuff. And I was at the time watching an episode of Modern Wisdom, which is a podcast that's hosted by Chris Williamson. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I've listened to a ton of episodes of it. And I was watching an episode that he was doing with Alex Hormozy, and they brought up the topic of procrastination. And there was this part of the podcast where Chris started rattling off a list of things that aren't doing the thing uh, or a list of things that procrastinators tend to do. And he started saying that talking about the thing isn't doing the thing and watching an episode about the thing isn't doing a thing. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that researching the thing isn't doing the thing. And I started thinking about it. And sometimes when you want to do something, you need to just apply brute force and break shit, right? To throw shit at the wall and hope that some of it sticks. So that's what we're doing right now, throwing shit at the wall and hoping that some of it sticks. But I'm a firm believer that you have to be a complete amateur at something to become a professional. I'm a firm believer that you have to absolutely suck at something to become good at it. And this is something that I talk to my clients about all the time. So I decided to, instead of researching how to do the thing, to just not research it and figure it out as I go. So I pulled out my camera uh, plugged it into the computer. I asked a friend of mine who works in the podcast space how I would go about recording a podcast and he gave me a handy tip for a website where you can go and plug your camera into your computer and start recording the podcast. And I started doing that and about two minutes in, my camera cut out. And I had experienced a couple of issues with it in like the week leading up to trying to record the podcast. And I just realized that it wasn't going to work. So I was back and forth with Sony trying to figure out what was going on with this camera. The outcome of that was that unfortunately, I've had to send the camera away to get repaired and who knows how long that's going to take. But there was an excuse, right? I started doing it and my camera didn't work. So you know, now I'm going to have to wait for the camera to come back. And I caught myself in that moment and I said, 
I'm not going to let that happen. And then I spoke to Susie about it and she told me to just go ahead and record it with sound only, but I really wanted to get the video component of it. So I jumped online and I figured out that there is a relatively new feature of the iPhone where you can use it as a webcam on your MacBook because the camera on the MacBook is complete garbage. And uh, that is what I'm doing right now, recording this on my phone and my microphone and not using the excuse that my camera broke and hopefully it comes out nicely. But I want to go into a little bit about what I'm going to talk about on this podcast and where I want it to go. The first few episodes are going to be solo, so they will largely revolve around fitness, health, bodybuilding, habit and behavior change, like all the things that I talk to my clients about on a day-to-day basis. But then I want to bring on guests, and yes, I do want to keep it fitness, health focused, but also business focused too. And uh, I've got a list of people who I am, you know, either friends with or connected to who I want to ask to come on. However, I do want to record a handful of episodes at the very least solo so that I can, as I was saying before, suck at it before I get good at it. And uh, that's what we're doing here right now. I think that everything worth doing in life is hard. And funnily enough, that is another topic that came up on that podcast that I mentioned where Chris Williamson and Alex Hormozy were chatting. And I've got a mantra. I've had this mantra for a really long time. I'm not sure where I got it from, but I've been using it repetitively for, I believe, almost a decade. And that mantra is hard things, easy life. And whenever I'm in a situation that I find difficult, whether it be physically challenging or mentally challenging, I'm constantly repeating to myself hard things, easy life. That can be in a long cardio session where I'm really struggling. That could be in an ice bath. Yes, I'm one of those guys. That can be if I'm stuck in traffic and I, you know, am late to be somewhere and I start to get that feeling of anxiety that I'm going to be late. Um, It's something that I've leaned into for a really, really long time. Um, And that sort of led me to thinking about, you know, where the hard things in life come up and where I've grown accustomed to doing them. And this isn't me saying that I'm some, you know, incredible specimen who puts himself in hard situations every day to you know, undergo the ultimate form of self-improvement. But it's been somewhat of a constant for me since I was younger with sort of a little bit of a gap thrown in there. Um, When I was a child, I was obsessed with basketball. I mean, utterly obsessed. Uh, As a, a young child, when I was like five, six years old, the world revolved around Michael Jordan. Uh, Everything in my bedroom was Chicago Bulls. All of my clothing was Chicago Bulls and I was just completely and utterly obsessed with this figure. And eventually I jumped ship when Kobe Bryant came into the NBA and I ended up becoming a Lakers fan and I, I became obsessed with Kobe Bryant. And to this day, I still am and when I was in high school, I wanted to play basketball more than anything. I wasn't very good at it, but I realized pretty quickly 
that if I was going to get good at it, that I was going to have to put in a lot of work. And this comes back to the whole Kobe culture and the Mamba culture and the Mamba mentality. I started going to school early every day. I used to get there at around 7.15 a.m. when school would start at like 8.30 and I would play basketball for over an hour. I would shoot, I would do drills, I would dribble. And as the bell rung for class to start, I would be running down the hallway, literally changing out of my basketball clothes into my school uniform before I ran into my first class for the day. One of my teachers actually said to my mother at a point that if I had put the same amount of effort into my schooling as I did into basketball, then I could have been anything I wanted. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't be a professional basketball player, but um, that did teach me about hard work and hard things and and putting in that work and eventually, you know, making better teams and, and becoming, you know, at least respectable at it was sort of my first introduction to it. And then obviously since I've gone on to some pretty decent endeavors in the bodybuilding space. Um, I'm not currently doing that anymore, uh, given the fact that I am old and injured. But again, that is something that will likely come up in subsequent episodes. But uh, I really want to focus on this central theme of doing hard things. And to talk about Kobe Bryant again, there are all of those small hard things that lead to high achievement. That's what really the culmination of doing hard things is. The culmination of those hard things is high achievement. Kobe won five NBA championships. And that was the culmination of those 3 a.m. wake-ups, the four-hour shooting sessions and training sessions by himself in the morning while everybody was asleep. Um, That's where I think that mentality of getting to school early and and shooting hoops every day really came from for me. Um, And I think it's fitting that I'm starting this right now in 2024, um, 24 being, you know, one of Kobe's numbers. um, So we can call it Mamba year. And I really want to channel that energy this year because it's not only a big year personally, uh, but it's a big year for our business. Our business grows, um, you know, almost every month. I would say it's definitely growing every quarter. And we're very fortunate to be doing something that we love doing in the space that we are passionate about. And I think this podcast is going to go hand in hand with that. And I'm really looking forward to jumping into it and exploring hard things more and bringing on guests and really seeing where we can go with it. But having said that, I want to get into the first episode because we're now a good 10 minutes or so in and I don't think I have introduced the topic yet. So here we go. Today, I want to talk about the bastardization of flexible dieting. Now, um, if you're a client of mine, you'll hear me say something very often, and that is, if nothing changes, nothing changes. It's almost another one of my mantras, uh, but it's definitely one of my famous quotes that I um, use in a lot of my client check-ins. And lately, I've noticed an alarming trend on social media. 
or it's somewhat of a resurgence of a trend. I actually posted a story about this the other night and it got a, a lot of engagement because there are apparently a lot of people who agree with me. And I think if anybody disagreed with me on this one, they'd probably keep it to themselves. But this trend that I've noticed is uh, when a influencer or a coach uh, goes to McDonald's or KFC or uh, Grilled or Subway and shows you how to do a low calorie order, a, an order that fits in with your intake, right? And on one hand, yes, that is a very practical tool and tip. But on the other hand, it's harmful. And why is it harmful? Well, without realizing a lot of what these people are peddling is the suggestion that you can lose fat, the suggestion that you can get in shape or the suggestion that you can undergo a massive transformation without changing your behaviors or your eating habits. And yes, the road to Subway is paved with good intentions, but what they're really trying to say is that calories matter most, or that's what they should be trying to say. Calories matter most when it comes to body composition, which is true. But telling Sally, who wants to go from 80 kilos to 60 kilos, how to order when she goes to McDonald's isn't really going to help her cause. Now, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I understand that as long as you are in a calorie deficit, you do not need to eliminate your favorite foods. And technically, that is true. But unfortunately, the way that this information is construed and perceived on social media is actually false. See, your daily eating habits, if you are trying to lose fat, if you're trying to change your physique, if you're really trying to undergo a transformation, are very likely a huge part of what needs to change. One of the things that you're going to need to do is make a shift toward health-seeking behaviors. If someone works in an office all week, right, and they go to work, they sit at a desk all day, and they go down to the food court and grab takeaway for lunch, should they keep doing that? Is that going to help them? If that person wants to lose body fat, is going and figuring out how to squeeze the same foods that they have been eating that got them in this position in the first place into their new calorie allowance going to be a positive thing for them? And I don't really think it is. So I really do believe that flexible dieting has been bastardized. Uh, now, I want to talk about where I sort of got introduced to it and where it really came about because I've been in the fitness industry for a really long time and I've sort of seen this progression over a long period of time. But I think it was in about 2012. So we're going on, let's call it 12 years now. There was a guy named Matt Ogus and he was a let's call him an influencer in the bodybuilding space. He was all over the internet, um, I believe on YouTube, um, but all over the forums and stuff and all those things that we used to do back then. Um, Instagram wasn't even that big a thing at the time. But this Matt Ogus guy 
went through a cut. He went through a dieting phase to get leaner. And he applied flexible dieting principles to that cut. Now, this was around the time where people like uh, Lane Norton and Alan Aragon and Bill Campbell and Eric Helms and all of those nutrition researchers had really put out all of this information that was rather eye-opening about flexible dieting. And what Matt did uh, on this cut from memory was that he ate a burrito from Chipotle every day, as well as Pop-Tarts, I believe. Pop-Tarts were like the popular flexible dieting thing at the time. And he got in like insanely good shape. Um, And again, this was all over the internet. It became like a huge story in the fitness space. And this is at a time where we were all doing that clean eating thing. And you know, that clean eating thing where the restriction was very high. And uh, that's why it sort of appealed to a lot of people because flexible dieting was supposed to be this savior that came in and helped you fix your shitty relationship with food. But the gap from what flexible dieting was supposed to be and what it has become has just grown and grown and grown and it's reaching like critical mass at this point. So what flexible dieting I think was supposed to be is how you stay on track with your goals and factor in date night, particularly date night with your partner who isn't dieting, um, your friend's birthday that you got invited to at a restaurant or those times where you're stuck on the road and you don't have access to your regular meals. And what it's become is the Biscoff overnight wheat bix the 26 different ingredient KFC fake away and like all of this stuff that you see on social media. Um, and I think that gap has just grown to a point where it has reached just an, a ridiculous level right now. Um, but I know about where the restraint and restriction in dieting can actually lead you because I experienced this firsthand, which is why flexible dieting can be a very, very useful tool. When I first became interested in bodybuilding, particularly competing, I would adhere to a very tightly controlled nutrition plan for a week or two weeks or sometimes even three weeks and then I would get my cheat meal. And I would go out on the weekend and I would gorge myself to the most insane levels of bloatation and sickness. And I had a really terrible relationship with food. On Monday to Saturday, I was eating egg whites and chicken breast and broccoli and rice and beef and beans and really not much outside of that, maybe protein powder. And then... Come that Saturday cheat meal, whether it was uh, weekly or fortnightly or even every three weeks, I would spend my Saturday, and this is no word of a lie, going out and procuring various sort of junk foodie treats, whatever was popular at the time. I'd go try this donut store or this croissant place or this cookie shop and then I would take that junk food home. I wouldn't eat it when I got it during the day. I would take it home and then I would go out for dinner that night and I would eat two burgers, fries, fried chicken, 
and I would wash it down with, uh, you know, a sugary soft drink. And then I would, on the way home, go get ice cream. I'd get ice cream from Messina in a takeaway tub and I would go home and I would make ice cream sandwiches and, uh, you know, eat those donuts with the ice cream. And it was just an absolute shit show, right? And I had a really, really terrible relationship with food. And not only was that something that buckled my relationship with food, but it also held me back from achieving my physique goals because when you're in a controlled deficit throughout the week, it is very easy to take yourself out of that deficit with binges like that. There were times where in a night I would say I consumed over 10,000 calories and that's no joke. So... I'm somewhat of a flexible dieting success story because I managed to, through flexible dieting, fix my relationship with food and and learn how to understand portion control. And that really helped me, you know, enjoy the foods I liked in moderation and eat foods that were conducive to my goals most of the time. When Susie and I first met, she actually called me a psychopath because I was living in Bali and she came to visit me uh, early in our relationship and I had these blocks of chocolate uh, in the fridge and I eat like a couple of pieces of this chocolate like every night for my quote-unquote dessert. It's just a little thing that I do after dinner because I like like this dark chocolate, right? I don't really have that much of a sweet tooth these days but um, I do, uh, I do enjoy some particular dark chocolates. And then she went back to Australia and came back like three or four weeks later and she saw those same two blocks of chocolate in the fridge and she was like, what the hell? I've never seen anybody, um, you know, leave the same blocks of chocolate in their fridge and actually not eat them. And I'm like, no, no, I do eat them. I, uh, I just have like, you know, they're the big lint squares. I have like two of them a night. And uh, that was sort of like eye-opening for her. But... That's what flexible dieting really should be about, adding the foods we enjoy in, you know, a more portion controlled manner. And, you know, one of the benefits of that is that it will minimize the dogmatic thinking about foods and foods, food groups. Um, it'll allow you to have more of a social life or it will fit in better with your social life. It will better equip you for unpredictable situations that will inevitably arise uh, where you don't have access to the food that you normally eat and it is a more sustainable approach now um, I want to make a side note on that because when I say sustainable and dieting in the same sentence people freak out I when I talk about fat loss and sustainability I'm not saying that you should be in a fat loss phase forever or even for a long time When I talk about sustainable fat loss, I'm talking about the ability to sustain that deficit for as long as you need to sustain it. I'm not talking about always dieting for the rest of your life because, um, you know, I've mentioned that a few times. I've said, uh, make it sustainable. And then people are like, fat loss shouldn't be sustainable. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. Fat loss shouldn't be sustainable, but you need to sustain your behaviors for the duration of your fat loss phase until you get to the result. Um, 
But look, research shows a lot of benefit to flexible dieting, but we have to factor in that almost all nutrition research has limitations. It's very, very hard to control when it comes to nutrition studies. But flexible dieting, it's a tool and tools can very easily be misused. Making a diet or nutrition plan too palatable can make things much more difficult. Hormones that impact hunger can change super drastically depending on how tasty a meal is. And there's some really interesting studies on that. Um, so that's one of the reasons that hyperpalatable foods are so easy to overeat and why they're such a huge problem and why having them in your nutrition plan, um, even if they are factored in to your intake, uh, is not really a good idea. Um, different meals every day and you know having too much variation make it a lot easier to overeat, right? Um, and that also leads to decision fatigue. We only have a finite amount of decision-making power. In fact, I have listened to a particular high performer a lot who wears a black t-shirt and black pants literally every day of his life simply so he doesn't have to make that decision about what to wear early in the day. And it, it's such an interesting thing when you think about it because if you're constantly trying to make decisions about what to eat, then managing your nutrition becomes really freaking difficult. And practicality tends to go out the window. Like if you think about shifting what you're eating on a day-to-day -day basis whilst you're trying to work on your body composition, you have to factor in things like shopping for groceries, preparing the meals, filling out your MyFitnessPal, playing the macro chest, Tetris, um, you know, being overly flexible with your nutrition approach is an absolutely massive time demand. Um, so if you're approaching your nutrition as like, here is my budget and now how can I maximize the amount of deliciousness I can fit into this budget, you're going to be consuming too many processed foods. So that's going to be, again, less satiating because we know that more processed foods are going to be less satiating. The other part of flexible dieting um, that is perhaps the most harmful part and something that you need to be super careful with is calorie banking. And this is something that I talk about almost on a daily basis with clients, particularly with new clients. Someone will start working with me and uh, we'll be working on their nutrition and then they'll say, I've got this hen's party on the weekend or I've got a friend's birthday or I've got a wedding. Um, should I be banking my calories? And again, calorie banking, like flexible dieting overall, is a tool, right? It's a tool to have in your toolbox and you should only pull it out when the job requires you to pull out that tool. But I like to use the analogy that calorie banking should be treated like a gun, right? If you own a firearm, you have to keep it 
locked up behind three points of lock in a safe that's bolted to the ground and you have to be vetted and a responsible enough person to use it, you don't just pull it out and start popping off shots in the backyard, right? Simply because you can. And banking calories should be treated like that because banking calories is a really micro version of a restrict binge cycle, right? It's a controlled restrict binge cycle, but it is still a restrict binge cycle. So it is something that you want to treat with the utmost respect because when I tell people about calorie banking and, you know, how they can manage the hens, the birthday, the wedding, what they hear is, okay, so all I need to do every Friday, Saturday, and even Sunday is really focus on my protein and fiber intake and leave all my fats and carbohydrates to the side so that way I can go out in the evening and you know eat whatever the hell I want. And it's like, whoa, 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 I didn't say that. What I said was, yes, we can focus on protein and fiber during the day and you know leave ourselves some fats and carbs to enjoy a social meal later. But at the end of the day, it's going to be difficult to manage that accurately, right? Particularly when the meals are prepared by someone else, which they almost always are because we know that there are huge variations in the macronutrient content of foods that you get when you're out. And that can be, you know, from places that have their macros on line and uh, on their menus. So I like to use the example of grilled with clients because that's a really popular burger chain in Australia and you can grab their nutrition information online very easily. But when you go into a grilled store, if you take a look at their kitchen, which they're all open kitchens when they're assembling the burgers, nothing is weighed out, right? And yes, I understand that it is going to be an approximation and you know over enough burgers it's going to average out to about what they say but you know you watch them put the sauce on that burger which a lot of the time is the main fat content and they're just like whacking it on and uh spreading it all over the burger and you know you go online and some of those burgers have 35 even 40 grams of fat in them um so you can really see how quickly that can impact a day Um, And from a coaching standpoint, when someone is too liberal with flexible dieting shit, it becomes very difficult to coach them because everything is unpredictable. They deal with major fluctuations on the scale, more so than normal. Um, Issues with water retention, uh, poor digestion, struggling with bowel movements because their fiber intake goes up and down, their sodium intake goes up and down based on the choices that they're making. And the look is constantly changing based on those things. And it just becomes really difficult to coach those people. And we like to use a flexible approach to nutrition with our clients. And I don't believe that coaching people with meal plans long-term sets them up for success after the coaching relationship comes to an end, which is why I like to use a flexible approach. However, 
when someone is struggling to get results and I audit their tracking, oftentimes what I will see is just a complete misuse of the flexible dieting principles. And I'm talking about having five, six, 10, 15 meals out in a week, right? Because you're exposing yourself to so many inaccuracies. The other thing is that we completely throw good sports nutrition practices out the window. And, you know, good sports nutrition practices are certainly not essential for everybody. But if you're trying to achieve a physique result, if you're trying to undergo a physique transformation, things like nutrient timing, like where you place your carbohydrates in relation to your workout, they're not very high up on the hierarchy of importance and they're certainly not essential, but they can be very beneficial. Like adopting some of those sports nutrition principles for someone who does want to, you know, like I said, undergo a physique transformation can be a very positive thing. So the other thing that the overly flexible approach makes super difficult is when someone is on a higher intake, let's say, for example, you've got a female who's 65 kilos and she's dieting on 1,650 calories and she's getting results, but she's been overly flexible with the approach, right? Too much takeaway, let's call it, um, or too many Biscoff overnight wheat bix hyperpalatable meals, etc. When she inevitably runs into a little bit of a wall and you decide you're going to take calories lower. When you go lower from 1600, the room in that nutrition plan for these things, it, it you lose a lot of it, right? So um, it's going to be a really, really rough transition to those lower calories, particularly when protein is kept at the same amount. Um, because you've just been eating too many, you know, hyper palatable foods that, you know, no longer fit in the nutrition plan. So that's uh, a little bit about my thoughts on flexible dieting and, you know, where it has gone versus, you know, what it was originally supposed to be. As I've said, I think it is a very valuable tool. I think a lot of people can use flexible dieting to intelligently insert things into their nutrition plan that will allow them to maximize their adherence, uh, fix their relationship with food, and to really get the outcomes that they're looking to get. However, there are certain influences out there in the world, influencers, let's say, um, and particularly coaches who have really bastardized it. And I think it is a very precarious place to be going. Um, although I am seeing a really nice trend away from the overly flexible approach, I think more and more people are starting to move away from that and into you know, what we would consider good, health-seeking and sports nutrition behaviors. So uh, hopefully over the coming years, flexible dieting 
closes the gap that got built, that gap between what it was supposed to be and what it is now. And I've got a really good feeling that that is going to be the case. But that's about all for me for episode one of the Hard Things podcast. And we will be back shortly for episode two.